Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Genesis Blog Podcast. Today we have for you another guest interview. And with us today is Bokant from Woodstock. He's a, a research associate looking at primarily gaming and infrastructure projects. Um, but I'll hand it over to him to uh, introduce himself. Um, hey guys, uh, happy to be here. So uh, yeah, as I mentioned, I'm Bukant. I've been with Woodstock for close to two years now, and I've spent like around three years in the Web3 space. So before this, I was primarily more uh, involved on the technical side. I used to be a smart contract dev, and I went on to Microsoft before uh, I you know, like joined Woodstock full-time. And now I've been here for uh, almost two years. Uh, again, my sectors primarily include uh, infrastructure, Web3 infrastructure, L1s, L2s. Uh, that is my primary, uh, the primary thing that I'm interested in. And uh, also a little bit of gaming projects on the side. Uh, so yeah, happy to be here. And uh... Awesome. Uh, thanks for that. Um, before we get into specifics, would love to just learn a little bit about yourself and Woodstock. I mean, obviously, as much as you're comfortable with sharing, but you know, um, how, how did you get into crypto and um, what is Woodstock's niche, if there is any? And you know, what is their core thesis um, playing in this space, in this nascent space? Um, yeah, so my journey actually started out with, uh, I was interning somewhere and uh, I was given a project, uh, I, I had to choose between a ML related project and a blockchain related project. And I just thought blockchain is more of a niche skill. So I thought I'll acquire that now and see how it goes. And uh, after that, when I got into it, you know, it was a rabbit hole. I just fell in love with the space. And after that, I've, uh, you know, never looked back, never looked at anything else also, to be very honest, I've just been uh, on that path. So yeah, as, as I mentioned earlier, I started out as a smart contract developer, took part in a few hackathons and got into uh, the like the exercise of writing smart contracts, which was a lot of fun and very engaging. And I think the main value at the like the main value that I could feel there was, you know, writing code that would handle like millions of dollars worth of transaction volume and uh, general like which is why it requires a lot of like, you know, good coding practices, a lot of safety that needs to be taken into account. So that part of it, I found very exciting, which is why I decided to, you know, uh, dive deeper into the space. Um, on Woodstock's front again, so Woodstock is one of India's oldest and largest crypto native uh, venture capital fund. We started out in 2019 and we have investments all across the Web3 stack. So they range from L1s, L2s, infrastructure plays, DeFi projects, NFTs, and gaming. Um, all across the stack. We, uh, on our th on the thesis side of it, so we have published our thesis recently and you can look into it. But on a very high level, uh, our thesis basically focuses on three parts, convergence, financialization, and virtualization. So the idea is that with blockchain and with crypto coming into the picture, uh, there will be a convergence of technology, there'll be a convergence of cultures, which will lead to a lot of, you know, like distributed teams coming together and building products for a wider, for a global audience. With financialization, we expect that uh, decentralized finance will, and some, uh, I mean, there will obviously be some regulation that will have to come into DeFi. And, you know, that has become very clear with the recent, like, sort of events with FTX that have happened. But some sort of regulation will have to come into the space. But uh, eventually, decentralized finance, uh, finance will create a lot of liquidity and allow users to participate in sophisticated financial products directly uh, in a more comfortable and open manner. And with virtualization, again, uh, we see that trend of, you know, uh, companies investing into the metaverse and uh, slowly products being built out for the retail users, where they are in charge of their own data, they are in charge of their own assets. And we think that blockchain will play a very foundational role 
in the virtualization aspect of things. So that is our thesis on a very high level, obviously. Yeah, uh, you can deep dive into it further order if you go to our website. Yeah. No, I I know I know for a fact Sid is uh, waiting to <laughs> go a bit deeper on on few of those points. But I'll just ask you one last thing before that um, about your background, right? So at a functional level, um, at, at at a crypto VC, what exactly does a research associate do? Um. Yeah. So I would say uh, my time is spent um, mostly like on two main tasks. One of them is evaluating deals. So again, this is looking at, you know, particular deals so that we have received. So analyzing different projects, seeing what valuation they're raising at, whether those valuations are sustainable, what we think of, uh, of the product market fit of a particular product, how, and how we evaluate it, right? So there are the metrics that we like to follow, we call the 5D metrics. And uh, after that, we also have, uh, so yeah, I think that is the first part of my job, which is analyzing uh, deal flow. Some part of it is obviously, you know, goes into sourcing deals, talking to people, trying to figure out who's building what in the ecosystem, looking at different accelerators, hackathons, seeing what kind of projects are coming out there. And another significant chunk of it is just like researching the space in general. So seeing what sort of movements we're seeing on chain, what, uh, you know, ecosystems are picking up, what sort of products we envision will be successful in the next upcoming wave of like, you know, the bull market or what wave will find product market fit next. So uh, yeah, I think the time is like majorly distributed across these two activities. Then I also work on the technology side of things. So I have some like level of coding that I have to do for internal tracking that we do for some of our portfolio companies say, or, you know, working with our portfolio companies in general and trying to, help them out with their architecture, their code base, and uh, anything on those lines as well. Got it. Awesome stuff. Very interesting. <laughs> Siddhal, yeah, hand it just, over to you. <laughs> yep, just one. No, I mean, it's not, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to start with like some uh, insane questions or anything, but just about Woodstock in general, do you guys do only token deals or is it token plus equity as well? Um, or like, what, what would you prefer? Um, yeah, so I think, uh, I think that uh, what, uh, everyone prefers answer changes drastically from a bear market <laughs> yeah. to a bull market. So in the bull market, I think everyone wants to invest into tokens in the bear market. Obviously, everyone's a lot more conservative and they prefer equity for, you know, like its stability and the long-term gains that are possible there. So um, with regards to, um, sorry, what was your, what was the first part of, part of your question? No, is it just like, would you prefer, or do you guys prefer token investments or token plus equity or mostly equity? Like what is the mix um, that, that that's the sweet spot? Um, So we don't have a defined like a ratio or anything like that. I think we're favorable to both uh, token and equity investments. For us, I think it's about if we are do if we are going ahead with a token model, it should make sense. Like, I think that is the primary concern that we have. So any project that we're talking to that has a token, we, a, we have an in-house tokenomics team that actually works very closely with our portfolio companies to help them design their tokenomics. And that's also how, uh, like a key point of evaluation of seeing whether a token sort of makes sense with this product. If it doesn't, we're more than happy. If we do like the product, we're more than happy to go into equity deals and uh, make equity investments as well, obviously. So that is not a bar for us in any way. We do both token and equity, just like what makes sense to us uh, is what okay, we do. Cool. And, and then from the tokenomics perspective, when, when you, you know, um, you say that uh, you guys have a team that, uh, you know, assesses the tokenomics, helps, helps teams define the tokenomics, uh, tokenomics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what do, do you think, um, like, what do you think the bar is to have a token? Like, and what I mean by that is, um, in, in my opinion, 
there, there's always like a bit of a bar to cross where that, that, that kind of proves, you know, okay, this is a, uh, a definite use case or a necessity for a token for this project or for this, you know, ecosystem. So obviously it can vary from, uh, you know, uh, project to project, but, but, uh, from a higher level, what, what do you think, um, is the level of scrutiny that a project needs to do, um, in order to understand, you know, whether a token is absolutely necessary for, uh, the products or services that it's, it's delivering because, um, we've seen a lot of issues with user friction and obviously a lot of, you know, um, a lot of times when people just haven't understood tokenomic models or like even designed them properly. Um, so in your opinion, you know, what, what are the kinds of things that, uh, what, what, what essentially is the bar for having a token and what, what do you think are the most important things that people really slip up on when they're designing these things? Perfect. And that's a great question. I think what a lot of founders miss sometimes is, you know, actually figuring out why that token sort of dynamic is necessary. And, you know, very often you would run into like sort of B2B, you know, SaaS applications that would want to do a token, which again, doesn't really make sense because their primary customer base will not want to engage with the token. Their user base, again, is not, you know, you're not marketing to a retail user base. So, which is where that token sort of argument really like falls apart. So I think uh, on some level, uh, I don't, Honestly, I don't even think that governance in itself is a good enough. And again, these are my personal views. I wouldn't say these are the wider, uh, wider like tokenomics teams views or Woodstock's views in general. But my view is that, you know, like even governance in itself is not enough, a good enough utility to, you know, justify having your own token out there. So um, I think in protocols that require some level of decentralization, where there is some, you know, dependency on other uh, people to act in a like in a socio crypto way in the right manner i think that is why tokens become really really critical so again for an l1 for example and to you know coordinate the base like transaction layer and make sure that transactions are added to the ledger appropriately i think that is where a token model makes a lot of sense i think for particular like infrastructure plays as well um, it makes a lot of sense to have a token because you need that for the internal coordination of the protocol and you need it to, you know, like penalize sort of malicious, malicious players as well. If they say, you know, serve the wrong data or something like that, depends on what sort of infrastructure protocol we're talking about. So, uh, I think those are use cases where it makes a lot of sense. Um, on the gaming side, I would say there are some, uh, so I know that, you know, crypto gaming recently has been obsessed with, uh, creating like, you know, these deflationary tokens that manage to accrue value from the gameplay itself. I still don't see that sort of a vision working very well. Um, you know, I have like, obviously I have uh, much like more deeper views on how the crypto gaming space sort of should play out and what sort of token models we see there. But, um, yeah, I think currently that is not in its like in, not in its best format because what it does is it, it's creates, even if you have a token that rapidly does like sort of accrue value to itself it prices out a lot of the users who are trying to play the game, which in itself is sort of counterproductive to what is happening. So yeah, I think uh, on a very high level, yeah, those are my views, but uh, happy to, you know, go into the details, talk about like specific projects and tokens, which I think work and what uh, doesn't work in some way. No, I think that are makes there, sense. Are there any particular instances um, that you've seen that you don't think a token is needed where you know, the team is of a contrary point of view. Um, yeah, so that does happen, but I think internally it's more about, you know, talking to those teams, uh, justifying our reasons for why we don't think 
uh, a token is necessary here, right? Like for the B2B SaaS example that I just gave, I think that is one of the conversations we even have had with a few portfolio companies, where if you're trying to build that sort of a product, which appeals to institutional investors, uh, appeals to institutions who will primarily be engaging with that product, they won't have space on your on their balance sheet to hold your token to you know gain access to certain features. And this makes the product very intimidating and actually not usable for them. So save that institution that you're trying to onboard is, you know, headquartered in the US or is registered in the US, then that in itself limits them from holding a lot of tokens on their balance sheet. So that in itself uh, becomes an issue. So I think those sort of problems need to be dealt with in the right way. Uh, sometimes, you know, again, you can come to like a middle ground as well, where some part of it can be funded by the token, but you also make sure that you know, so again, like a, the way that a lot of uh, infrastructure protocols operate is instead of, you know, making your, uh, making the customers or the institutions pay in the native currency of that particular protocol, you pay in stable coins and then on the back end that is converted into the token. So that also becomes another interesting model that you can offer up as a solution if a token is necessary. So if someone is decentralizing their back end, for example, I think a token becomes very necessary there. So then you need to sort of combine that institutional angle with the with the general tokenomics of you know having a diversified sorry a distributed infrastructure pattern or a distributed L1 sort of thing. So yeah, I think it it really varies. I think case to case, but uh, these yeah. are definitely discussions that we have in front. I found the stablecoin point extremely interesting because that's kind of you know like when I mentioned what is the bar for me um, when I'm trying to understand how to design tokenomics. Um, my bar and like it, it's 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 a bit crude at the moment, but um, it, but but you know the bar that I also I hold tokens to is could I replace this with a stablecoin and will it be easier? That that's one of the things that I look at as you know a kind of barometer to understand whether there's tokens, um, act, whether a token is actually necessary to either bootstrap the protocol or bootstrap incentives within stake between stakeholders within that protocol. Um, so in terms of stablecoins, right? So what do you think about the use of stable coins within a token economy for a for a project um, or, or or like for a protocol? Like, where do you think they should come in, and where do you think there's a necessity um, for a token uh, for a native token to be there instead of stable coins? Um, like, you know, um, if you've got any examples uh, from from your experience, or you know, even if you don't, just like what your opinions are are on that. Um, yeah, so I think uh, the token is necessary. Uh, I mean, I think on an ideal level, we could all say that, you know, uh, say if there's a certain infrastructure protocol that requires uh, that instead of, you know, using the native token that they have created, you can always replace it with a stable coin and use stable coins for payments and for coordination in the network. Have, you know, every sort of node provider uh, sort of run their own I mean, you know, provide their own stake in stable coins, which can be slashed if they behave maliciously or something on that front. Um, but the only argument I have against that is, so for that, a protocol needs to generate actual and real revenue, which is something that all Web3 protocols in the beginning struggle with. So what a token does is it provides them with a good way to bootstrap the network initially in the form of incentives. So you, so the way that say, you know, Pocket Network, for instance, use their token, on, uh, use their token to just bootstrap and get a lot of node providers, a lot of like RPC relayers onto the network so that they can service whatever demand exists. 
now again there can be you know some disparity in the demand supply as well which ended up happening in case of pocket as well where there were too many node providers and not enough people actually requesting for those services and the token basically inflated out of control and wasn't sustainable anymore but i think that gets to the final details of it but i think as a bootstrapping mechanism it is very very necessary in some cases so again uh, if because even like say ethereum in its current form generates significant rev revenue right for its validators where uh, uh, validating on the network can actually be profitable now there's a whole technical argument here as well as to why that coordination layer is necessary because if you just fund a protocol via the transaction fees it leads to this thing called block instability but that is a more technical discussion from a purely economic perspective also um, there will be like early days in the Bitcoin and in fact, even in the Bitcoin network right now, if you look at periods where we go through a bear market, most of the transaction fees is actually funded by the inflation of the protocol itself and not by the actual revenue that is being generated from different transactions. So to ensure that security in the network, to ensure that, you know, hash power in the network stays above a certain level where it is safe. I think that those tokens are necessary for that sort of social uh, social coordination. And, uh, so I, I know you said it's a bit technical, but do you, do you want to just quickly touch upon the block instability aspect of this a little bit? Because I, I like delving a little bit into the technical aspects and uh, that seems interesting. Yeah. So block instability is a problem that has been discussed for quite some time. And uh, again, uh, there was this whole wave of like academia in, you know, 2013 to 2017 that came in and said, you know, Bitcoin is instable for X, Y, Z reasons. And a lot of that has to obviously do, uh, I mean, a lot of that has to do with game theory, but obviously, you know, game theory assumes that everyone is operating to, you know, generate the maximum profit, which, which can vary from certain cases. So. Uh, there's a very famous quote by Hasu, who's a very famous like researcher, who says that you know block uh, that Bitcoin is insecure in theory, but secure in practice. And one of those like sort of arguments against Bitcoin was uh, that of block instability. So the idea there is that once uh, you have, so I mean currently you know we get 6.25 BTC for every block that is mined, and that is essentially inflation in the protocol. It's called block reward. But now the idea is that when Bitcoin hits a certain block height that inflation reward is going to keep halving right the bitcoin halving thing and eventually it's going to go down to zero so there comes a point where once the block reward is zero every needs to be funded by the transaction fees within that block right and the transaction fees themselves need to make it sustainable enough for uh sorry i think my earphones are out of battery. so yeah uh, so there will be a point where transaction these are the only thing that incentivize validators to mine or for miners to mine on the network, right? Sorry for getting a little confused with POS and POW there. But uh, so um, once you hit that point, what ends up happening is the so right now for every miner to be profitable, it makes a lot a lot of sense to just keep adding new blocks to the blockchain because you're getting a block reward which is more than the transaction fees of that block. But once that block reward goes away. The, the miner strategy deviates a little bit. So instead of mining new blocks continuously, it might be more profitable for a miner to focus. So let's say there are two transactions in the Bitcoin blockchain right now. One has one BTC of fees and the other one has three BTC of fees, right? And a miner just like mines the block with the three BTC of fees. Now, if I'm, I'm a different miner looking at that new reward of just one BTC and I'm like, you know what, this isn't enough. Let me mine another block. So let me fork the chain 
and mine another block which includes that three BTC transaction as well, three BTC fee transaction. So what that essentially does is it forks the chain. So that leads to repetitive forking of the chain, which it which inherently makes the whole chain insecure, right? Because now different hash power is going into securing different like sort of chains uh, of the Bitcoin blockchain. So that becomes one malicious strategy. Then there's another malicious strategy, which is, which is to just wait for the high value transactions to show up, which can again create a significant lag in between two blocks showing up, which slows down the entire network. So there are a total of like some six different deviant strategies that can take place and which is why it's called block instability. And this is supposed to kick in at some point when uh, transact when inflationary rewards essentially run out and we don't have enough transaction fees on the network to compensate for uh, all of that. So and can this happen for yeah. all types of networks, like in the sense that even for Ethereum, um, like, like, is it a, is it a, an even bigger threat now that Ethereum, um, you know, like the base fee gets, uh, the base fee gets burnt, right. Mm. Uh, for each block or, and, um, and, and also that, uh, Ethereum is essentially trending towards deflation right now. Um, right. So, so that's where, so that's why Ethereum is ex extremely smart and you have to admire the genius for it. Right. So with the EIP 1559, what they do is they focus on, they ensure, and if you look at Vitalik's notes, um, yeah, but, uh, so what I was saying is that Ethereum has two ETH constant inflation with every block. So the block reward always remains. So, which is like this deviant minor strategies don't exactly exist because it is always profitable for the miner to create a new block in the chain, right? So every new block that is mined on the chain, that miner will get, I mean, now validator will get a certain, I mean, actually now it's not even two ETH anymore. Two ETH was when it was POW. Now there's a certain inflation that has been decided baked into the protocol and the rewards take place based on that inflation curve based on the value stake. But point is you're constantly getting rewards for mining the new block. However, if you, uh, so the deviant minor strategies don't exactly exist anymore because the block reward is still there. Now, in order to prevent that continuous inflation of two weeks throughout each life cycle, they found that a better mechanism was to burn the base fees, which actually represents how many users are actually using the network and how many are using it to transact and that value essentially gets burned. So it's a much smarter way of dealing with the block instability problem. And it's part of the reason why EIP-1559 was designed the way that it was. So yeah, you have to appreciate like it's genius in this case for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, cool. I think, I think that makes sense. Sorry, Sid, go on. Just, just one last question on this point. Uh, right. So, um, what I'm trying to get at is, uh, there are multiple, there are two camps essentially, right. Of people who think that after the mining rewards, um, go to zero, uh, one side say that the transaction fees will not be enough, uh, to maintain the security and stability of the network because miners, you know, either won't want to participate or they will be incentivized to perform these malicious behaviors. Right. Um, and, and undermining the whole blockchain. Um, are you in that camp or are you of the camp that believes for whatever reason that the transaction fees will be enough, um, to justify, uh, minor, uh, good minor behavior. Um, so I think it's really hard to predict how it will work, but I'm more, uh, I'm in actually a different camp, I would say like a third camp where I definitely don't think that the transaction fees will be enough to compensate the network because the way that Bitcoin's narrative has been changing, right. And it's going more towards that sort of digital gold, high value transactions. There won't be a lot of velocity of Bitcoin. So the transaction fees on the network will be relatively low. And if you look at the user charts in a bear market, 
Bitcoin usage is close to like 0% in that transaction fee department. So I don't think that part will make up for it. I think there's an argument that can be made that most miners will not deviate from, will not deviate uh, from, you know, to the malicious strategies to make the most amount of profits. Because if the Bitcoin blockchain itself becomes unstable, their assets and whatever they earn, essentially they're undermining themselves, right? So I think that creates that loop for them only to make sure that their chain is secure, which is why I don't think miners will go to those deviant, uh, deviant you were saying that there's this third camp that uh, the the fact that um, the miners already have uh, already have so much vested interest in the network they won't perform these malicious activities. Is that essentially the case you're making? Yeah, I don't think the transaction fees will be enough to incentivize the miners, but I think the fact that their underlying holdings and their underlying assets depend on this to succeed, that's why uh, they will sort of tend to secure the network in the proper manner. Sure, got it. Interesting. Okay, let's um, let's switch it up a bit. Um, so, is there anything particular you want to ask, or should I go from? Um, there? yeah, I think like in in terms of uh, let, let's just go over like the general market right now. Then, um, so you know, in general, what has the impact of this year been? Uh, you know, from a from a VC perspective. So obviously, it's been a brilliant car crash of a year. Uh, for crypto, where with uh, you know Luna and 3AC Celsius, um, and you know the mother of all frauds, um, FTX happening this year, Voyager. I mean, all of them are connected, right? The amount of correlation in this space is actually mind blowing. But um, but but you know, like, what has the impact been? Um, you know, from both a capital deployment perspective, um, and from a from an LP interest perspective, so you know um, your your LPs like what what is their reactions? What what are their reactions been? Um, you know what 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 about any other outside interest that you've been getting? What about the general sentiment that you've been seeing about crypto um, from investors and also from you know regular um, uh, you know any any other people that that you think are important? Um, you just wanted to get your get your take on you know this just what's happened this year. Um, yeah, so I think uh, at the beginning of the cycle when, you know, like valuations were uh, falling down, generally speaking, I think all of us were a little relieved because uh, beginning of, uh, sorry, end of last year, beginning of this year, we could see that the market was extremely hot and everything did feel like it was overvalued and you could tell that, you know, every, like all of it is going to come crashing down in some way. So when the first few like sort of corrections were happening, we thought that this would be healthy for, for the market. But then obviously, you know, like a lot of incidents happened, FTX, Luna, all of that. And the contagion that came from all of that really like ruined things for everyone. So, uh, and now, you know, we can't make that argument of saying that it is healthy for the market and that it is, you know, pricing things in the correct manner. Because unfortunately it isn't. And it's in fact giving the, like, you know, ruining the reputation of the entire crypto space in general. So that part of it is extremely, extremely unfortunate. Um, what on a, on a investment uh, on the investment side of things, so again, I don't work with uh, a lot on the fundraising side, so I can't speak to that uh, with a lot of depth. I think, you know, my answer would be like fairly standard and generic in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of distrust. We've seen Sequoia sort of, uh, Sequoia LPs talk to their uh, portfolio companies, uh, sorry, uh, talk to their uh, partners and tell them that, you know, we don't want you guys to do any major crypto investments anymore and so on and so forth. Um, so it it's, I mean, it's not the best time, I think, definitely to, you know, be associated with the space. Unfortunately, I have lots of friends who've also reached out to me and been like, hey, 
So how's the scam industry you're working for going and stuff like that, which is, you know, really, really unfortunate. Um, from a capital dis- deployment perspective, though, I would say things are a little bit exciting because now you do see, you know, like most of the projects we talk to are genuine builders. They're, you know that they're here to stick around for the long term. There's also a lot less capital floating around anymore. So now, you know, due diligence is done more properly by all the other funds out there. We generally, you know, get more time to evaluate these because in the bull market, there used to be phases where, you know, everyone used to just FOMO into projects so heavily that you would get a deal and you would have to close it within one week of getting it. Now, due diligence periods are longer. So we can spend like, you know, two, three weeks understanding every deal in depth, making sure that, you know, all the bases are covered, all the I's have been uh, dotted and the T's have been crossed and so on. So I think that part of it becomes very exciting and we're definitely seeing a lot of interesting projects out there. So, yeah, and uh, we think that, you know, like now is the gen- now a new generation of like sort of new giga giant builders will step up and make sure that, you know, the space grows to the next level. So uh, definitely excited for that part. Of it. And, and do you and think, think then... Yeah, and I think... It, sorry, sorry, go on, go on. I, uh, I just didn't want to cut you off. Uh, no, no, I was just saying that, yeah, I think uh, because, uh, you know, if you have some capital lying around, now is definitely one of the better times to invest again. None of us can time the bottom perfectly. It's impossible to catch a falling line. But you, you know, make sure that you're investing at this uh, frame of time to make sure that you maximize your returns when you do get to the market. Cool. And, and do you think, you know, um, just speaking about the froth of last year and, and you know, all the, the, the deal turnaround times and all of that, um, next time when it comes around, because there is going to be a pull and there's going to be a crash and then, the, you know, cycles repeat and history rhymes, you know. So um, do, you, do you think that uh, it's kind of an indication that when people are going crazy and deals are coming in and coming in and you're just getting FOMO and you're missing out, I know that it's a bit of a haze at the time. Um, but do you, do you think that that's actually a sign that you have to step back a little bit? Um, and, and stick to your guns about your due diligence process, about, um, you know, how you should be executing um, your deals based on your timelines as well and not just giving into pressure because others are doing it as well. Is that just just like sticking solidly to your principles uh, a good way of navigating this kind of market? Um, Definitely. And I think that Woodstock, we have been trying to do that. Like we, every intro call that we get onto, we you know, definitely let the potential company know that we have at least like a two, two to three week due diligence process. So we're going to set up our business due diligence. We're going to set up our technical due diligence, you know, before we're in a position to commit. So we make those timelines generally very clear from the get-go. Now, what, en- what ends up happening is even in the bull markets, even the good good projects have like a significantly shorter timeline, right? Because the good projects do want, uh, because it's much easier for them to raise capital. So I think it, it's a little interesting. I unfortunately don't have a direct answer for this about how you would, you know, like perfectly play that balance. But again, I would say for like 90% of projects, you definitely need to stick to your timelines. You need to stick to your duty. In some cases, which also I think would be true for this market, you need to take that leeway, make, you know, some bets purely based on how good, say, a particular founder is or how good a particular product is and how it's shaping. So yeah, I think you need to like sort of assess what percentage again those become like slightly higher risk teams but again we're in vc investing right so we're used to that level of risk i think so just like allocating what percentage you would like to you know give to like a founders bed allocating what kind of a percentage you would give to like a great product that's already live sort of a thing and then you know like sticking to due diligence for the rest kind of helps navigate that framework and ensure that you don't have a significant downside when 
or things go bad. I think. Yeah, I think that would be a better way to navigate it. Okay, ma- makes sense. Um, yeah, because because I think that like the the founder agreement, the the founder argument is is obviously the the main the main thing, right? Like you have to invest in founders. I think after FTX, that trust is definitely going to be shaken a little bit because people were holding it, holding um, SBF up as you know. Um, as one of the poster boys, as as someone who was an absolute genius, as a founder, you couldn't miss out on investing in, um, you know. So uh, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how how that shifts, how that mentality shift is going to affect investments over the next year or so, or even the longer time period, and what we're going to be learning from it. Because I think that as an industry, we've been scarred a little bit. Um, because we've kind of been hoodwinked as other LPs um, from, you know, within crypto native VC funds and also within non crypto native VC funds who invest in the, in this space, you are a bit scarred because, you know, I I think that there had been a lack of due diligence to be very honest, because um, a lot of what I've seen also came out and went like, you know, people were like, Oh, he was on the cover of Forbes. Obviously you're going to invest in him. And you go like, uh, and then when all of this breaks, uh, you go like, well, is that good enough due diligence? So I think that it's going to force people to do their DD a little more seriously. Um, but these lessons get eroded with time. So I guess it it uh, also depends on the people who take them into take them to heart and like continue, you know, um, sticking by sticking to your guns. And and I think that I've also I've learned a lot this year um, about what not to do. Yeah. No, I think, I think it, it was also my. It was also my first bull market, like pure bull run. And I saw like, you know, the euphoric craze where everything you invest in just like 10 X the next day. And you, you feel like a genius one day and you're like, wow, I'm so smart. I was made for this. And then you get to the bear market where, you know, everything you invest in just like doesn't really work out. And you start questioning the decisions that you made. And you're like, maybe I should yeah. have thought this through a little bit. More. So yeah. Definitely yeah. a lot of takeaways, but I kind of want to see how I react to the same cycle when it happens again. And yeah, whether same. or not I'm able to learn from it. Same, yeah. Um, Definitely, I think um, I think crypto. I mean, investing is very well known to be a battle of you know intellectual battle and emotional battle as well. And I think crypto is probably at the you know the penultimate or ultimate point on that spectrum of you know where you can invest. So I think uh, it's going to be quite interesting what we do in the next bull run. Um, but but just to to conclude this uh, conversation wanted to get you know your personal views um, and just you know looking into the future in the short to intermediate term you know what are some protocols that you're interested in um, what are you you know personally excited by especially right now when all the noise or most of the noise has uh, you know disappeared um, so I think firstly, I mean, I think this is the most like generic basic answer I can ever give you, but I think Ethereum definitely is, you know, something that I'm always looking forward to reading about their updates, seeing what they're doing, uh, be it on any side, you know, like even like how, how they're doing with rollup abstraction, EIP 4844 and generally what they're trying to do to, you know, make sure that they have the execution capabilities that are required in the network, what they're doing on the data side of it with like, you know, dank sharding and proto dank sharding and the various implementations of it uh, on the MEV side of it, you know, with like proposal builder separation and what sort of things are happening there. So I think Ethereum is definitely the most exciting ecosystem for me to look up, look and deep into as a pure, like, you know, person who looks at tech, I think Ethereum is definitely the most exciting protocol for me because, you know, it's the level of research and the fundamental understanding that they have in the space a lot of other people lack. Um, other than that, I think from a core, like sort of uh, infrastructure perspective, 
I think I'm more uh, looking into say RTC providers, and because if we do expect you know the demand for RTC to scale, uh, sorry, if we do expect the users in crypto to scale significant, I think RTCs have to scale along with that because they're essentially our your how you interact with the blockchain, right? So they're going to be used in the back end of every DeFi application. They're going to be used on the back end of every wallet. Everyone basically will need an RTC provider. So I think that if we expect the user numbers to like you know continue to grow in an explosive manner, like we saw across the last couple of bull runs, I definitely think RTC providers are a good place to you know sort of uh, put your bets in, make sure because that's an industry that's going to rise, uh, keep increasing with more institutional adoption. Obviously, you know we'll see some of the bigger RTC players also. Um, make significant revenue from those sort of chunks as well. Um, on the other than that, also really interested in oracles and sort of like these real world lending platforms. I think those have a good. I think those need to do really well for blockchain to find that like product market fit because currently we're still stuck very much within the crypto ecosystem, right? Like you can exchange your crypto for crypto, but there's not a lot of applicability outside of it. So doing real world lending, like say with Goldfinch or Centrifuge. Actually provides those real-world adoption use cases that everyone talks about. So you use oracles to you know provide real-world insurance and uh, insure different types of products, do instant remittance. So those kinds of things again, you know, make me really really excited. And um, yeah, I think on the use cases side of it, I think those are the major ones. Um, gaming, I think, is still too nascent in current form. I don't see like particular Web3 games of winning out against Web2 games directly uh, very much in the future. I think that there's still like you know scope for infrastructure bets there where uh, once the base infrastructure is built out properly, once you know account abstraction happens properly, so that users don't know they're interacting with the blockchain while playing the game, that is when I think we've achieved that goal of getting Web two gamers onto Web three because currently obviously you know they're not also big fans of it. So uh, yeah, I would say like on the gaming side of it, my bets would be more on the infrastructure side of things. Um, yeah, I think on a very high level, those are the sectors that I'm like sort of deeply interested in and what I'm looking out for. Just to just to push a little on the RPC point that you made, right? And you we also alluded to uh, you alluded to pocket a bit early on. Um, and those two, uh, how how do you reconcile the two? Because essentially they are contradictory points of views, right? Because if 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 you're bullish on RPCs, pocket should have ideally, uh, you know, been been um a sound investment but clearly we've seen that you, as you mentioned that the user side of it was not enough so is it the case of pocket was simply a bit too early uh no i think in pocket's case the token model was the main issue so because of the way that they had designed their token it constantly inflated and after a point the token price fell drastically the validators also uh, i mean the node providers weren't compensated well enough the users also had some so again i think uh, and I'm pretty sure Pocket itself is also working on, you know, redefining that tokenomics, coming up with a model that works. And when they do, when they have something that, you know, accurately balances that supply and demand, I think they'll be in a good place because they're truly one of the like most decentralized RPC plays out there. So uh, definitely excited for Pocket, but I think with the current tokenomics, it doesn't work. I think that's how. Oh yeah, exactly. And and what do you think about Infura getting more decentralized now? Because they've announced that, right? They've said that uh, Infura is going to um, essentially decentralize its RPC nodes. Um, so do you, I mean, I think that that's very bullish for the space. I actually think that consensus is doing a lot of good work for crypto in general. Um, it is still pretty centralized, but uh, you know, if they're making an effort to decentralize and if they're you know they are core Ethereum. Um, you know, so what, what what do you think that says about the space and, you know, just about, um, 
yeah just just in general like how 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 do you think they will decentralize like what is the model they may use um sorry uh, i my phone's ran out of battery midway through but uh, so uh, i uh, infura i think uh, i mean i think infura's plans around decentralization yeah i think infura's plans around decentralization are sort of vague right now we don't know exactly how they're planning to decentralize their rpc business um even with metamask i think everyone's so I, they might take the token route because again with metamask uh, launching swaps and everyone's now looking forward to the metamask airdrop as well i think consensus has sort of you know taken that route where they do want to launch tokens for the different products that they operate on so i think uh, even infura itself could have an infura token and use that to you know coordinate the rpc part of it and uh, if they do do that I i'm sure it'll be very well designed and given that they have a strong user base uh, already existing i think for them to convert and be revenue positive and make sure the network is balanced should be fairly simple so we'll see how that whole process like you know sort of takes up but uh, unfortunately yeah, we don't have a lot of details as to how they will be implementing or executing it as of now and just um last question for me because i know that we need to wrap up soon but um you you mentioned the oracle aspect of it and i i'm pretty interested in oracles as well because one of the use cases that i've always been bullish on and honestly it's one of the main reasons i came into the space is tokenization of real world assets and and also you know um the insurance stuff that you mentioned etc cetera, etc cetera. <clears throat> uh, but aren't um oracles one of the most important but also fragile infrastructural pieces of this ecosystem today and how can they be made more robust like for example for some of the real world use cases that you've mentioned um right or some of the real world use cases that it would be very useful for especially for the tokenization of illiquid assets there has to be a lot of reconciliation with off chain processes in order to be able to effectively tokenize and and service those assets on chain um so in, in general um for for things that are bespoke for illiquid assets and for for even um you know illiquid real world assets that need to be tokenized um how can oracles service those individual you know more more bespoke assets because you would need you know um trusted oracles servicing data feeds for that individual asset that might be a little difficult to do so so how does that like there's a there's a there's a dream version where we have where all of this stuff gets tokenized and and brought on chain but then how does that you know match match to reality where there are still you know lots of open questions around technically um around how oracles can be can can do those things uh, yeah so i think some parts of it are being worked on already so uh, so like for example a lot of the lending that used to happen on oiler was done via the tvop oracles that uh, uniswap used to provide right and again because they were primarily taken from the t uh, from the uh, from the uniswap pool itself it was fairly easy to manipulate that pool and with the merge happening there was also this concept of multi block mev that came around mm -hmm. where you could use that tvap or uh, like you could tvap that oracle and manipulate it in a way so that you get a like a subprime yeah. loan uh, via oiler so what oiler did in response to that was to upgrade all of their price feeds from uh, the oracle tvop to the chainlink price feed so i think those sort of active measures need to constantly be taken to assess what is going on what what could potentially go wrong with your protocol with the upcoming changes and figuring out what system works best on a purely oracle perspective i think uh, some of those issues will persist for some time because again a lot of these have to you know like some of these issues might even be need to solve that the base layer 
because with oracles again you have to like you know have it everything gets updated in say two sets of transactions nothing happens atomically within one set so i think that in itself creates some lag and creates some room for manipulation in that sense so there are certain like problem statements that uh, and i would say some fairly open problem statements that need to be fixed in the oracle world but i think people are already working on that and again chainlink is one of the biggest players they've been leading the research for this for many many years and i know a lot people are a lot smarter than me are working on it so i'm <clears throat> sorry i'm sure we'll have a solution eventually but uh, yeah unfortunately i don't have a direct answer right now but i think the problems that you pointed out are very fair some of them are being worked on right now some of them will obviously you know take more time to be implemented and to get through but i think they will eventually like on a protocol level they can be solved uh, they can be solved by a different like sort of so uh, chainlink is also working on their own cross chain protocol as well i think it's called ccip or something so that in itself might solve the uh you know like all the bridging issues that we've seen everywhere so again there's like different sub solutions out there that could potentially you know create a complete picture that looks rosy and looks good enough but it's not as prone to manipulation as it is right now cool perfect yeah i think that makes sense i think that's it from my barrage of questions <laughs> let's yeah let's let's uh, wrap this up so vakant uh, thank you so much uh, for hopping on with us uh, uh really appreciate your time and thanks for you know uh, uh giving us and giving us a schooling session i learned a lot at least uh so thank you once again yeah thanks so much for jumping on it was really really not a fun that i yeah and i love talking about technical things so this was yeah same like, i i i yeah i mean like if you start if you start me on this stuff i'll never stop so i think still has to hold me in, in check a little bit um yeah. but yeah as soon as you as soon as you said multi blog i mean we i'm like relax <laughs> yeah relax you said multi block <laughs> me when i was like okay okay i i can't i've, I've got to control myself <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so anyway thanks so much and hopefully then maybe next time if you uh, if you can hop on then we can talk about some mev stuff as well yeah would okay. be awesome to continue the chat <laughs> yeah it was great guys thank you so much all thanks. right thanks guys yes, for coming in for another episode of genesis block until next time see ya see ya cheers bye Thank you.